welcome to Professor Dave Debates. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about something that I finally do have quite a bit of knowledge about, as it is my very profession, science communication. Who should be doing it? Why should they be doing it? How should they be doing it? In a time where the body of scientific knowledge possessed by mankind is ballooning to be so great and so sophisticated that its contents must be communicated to the public lest they be left in the dark. Given that I work as a professional science communicator, I have a particular stance on this issue. However, my expert guest today, Sarah Mojarod, is coming at this from a bit of a different angle. She works at University of Southern California as a lecturer of engineering, writing, and medical education, and her work is focused in online STEM communication. So she is working with scientists and graduate students to help develop their abilities in communicating their own science. So whereas I communicate other people's science, uh, scientists themselves should also be equipped with the skills to tell people exactly what they're doing and why. And this is actually the first episode where we leave the professorial palace that is my North Hollywood apartment, and we go on location at Caltech University, a revered institution. I get the chills every time I walk around over there. So much great science has occurred in those buildings. And given that this is a different setting, I also decided to experiment with a different format. Today's episode will be without moderator. I just wanted to talk to Sarah one-on-one -on -one and really get down to the bottom of this issue about science communication, uh, what science communicators can do, what scientists can do, and how we can work together to educate the public, make sure they're up to speed on all kinds of science issues. So if you want to learn more about this, you can follow Sarah on Twitter at Sarah underscore Mojarad, M-O-J-A-R-A-D. And let's get into this episode so we can find out how we should communicate science. Hey guys, it's Dave here. I'm here with Sarah Mojarad, and we are going to be talking about science communication. Who should be doing it? What is the best way to do it? And uh, so obviously I have a particular perspective as I am a, uh, a, a specifically a science communicator and not a scientist, and so I spend all my time figuring out how to communicate science to people. Uh, but uh, Sarah teaches science communication to science students and scientists, and so uh, we're going to get a fresh perspective on this. So uh, Sarah, tell, tell us what you do exactly. Um, so I teach at USC. I teach at both campuses, the medical school and down at UPC. And my focus is getting students in science, medicine, and technology to communicate directly with the public. So a lot of the courses and initiatives that I have going on are all aimed towards that. Okay. So what are, what are the main initiatives? What are some of the main points in the curriculum? Well, my main focus is to get these students to communicate using social media. And I think that's important because all of us are using that technology. Mm -hmm. So everyone's kind of getting their information from what are the main ones? We're talking about Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Facebook. Yeah, and a lot of the information that's on there isn't necessarily accurate. Right. So that's why it's important to get people with a technical background in STEM to communicate directly with the public. So are they saying, hey, these are true things? Or are they saying, hey, this is what I do? Are they communicating their own science? Or are they getting involved in just whatever's in the melee? I tend to focus on having the students communicate what their main expertise is, but really 
I also like to work with them on what their individual interests are. I don't approach this by saying, here is how you have to communicate. Instead, I learn a little bit about the person and then um, help them to communicate using their own qualities and skill sets. Mm-hmm. Do you have any trouble incentivizing? Like I, I imagine, or I think a lot of people might imagine sort of a stuffy scientist going, well, you know, I don't have time for this. What, why, why do I have to tell people what I'm doing? I, I just do what I do. You know, where, where's the benefit? That definitely comes up quite often in mm-hmm. higher ed. And um, I think that younger generations are definitely interested in communicating. Um, but yeah, the incentive system isn't there in higher ed just yet. We are seeing um, organizations and foundations um, put more of a focus on communicating research. NSF has included a broader impact section on all of their proposals, and people need to communicate how they are going to be including more outreach efforts in their work. Mm -hmm. So the shifts are coming, but it's definitely gradual and slow. Do, is there a quantitative impact that we can measure in, in terms of societal, uh, you know, their perspective? Do we see more people going into science? Do we see anything different about the way they're interacting with science news? I'm not really sure. It's t- It's probably tough to measure, right? How do you gauge a society, an entire society's understanding of science, right? Yeah, I think that there can definitely be pockets of information on this. For instance, the move to have um, anti-GMO stamps mm-hmm. on food products, mm-hmm. I think, is really a result of the public's misunderstanding of mm-hmm. what GMOs are. Um, so that can be a little bit scary. Um, science literacy is really low in the U.S. Yeah, so specifically, right. It just tends to be a real problem. So that's interesting because, you know, I, I do agree that just in general, there's sort of anti-science mentality. And I think that scientists and science communicators should, in a very general way, engage with that. So I think uh, communicating your own science and, hey, this is what I did in the lab today, obviously is really great. But I wonder, it's just, it's such, such more, it's so much more of an elusive thing to just combat that anti-science mentality and sort of meet it, you know, in, in the battleground. What, what can we, how can we address that? What, what can we arm people with to do that? Oof, you, you've hit on a really tough point. <laughs> it is, yeah. So I think, first of all, just getting people to communicate their science is a wonderful step because it's actually getting quality information out there Mm -hmm. and not only that it's introducing the public to what a scientist looks like yeah so if you google image scientists quite often what comes up is an old white man but it's stock images especially yeah exactly um but what i really hate is the stock images where they're just sort of pandering to what people think science is. So they're like, this is what people think science is. So let's make stock images, not of scientists as they truly are, but we'll have somebody, uh, we'll have a, 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 a biochemist examining like a model of DNA. And it's like, what are they looking at? They know what DNA, like they know what that is. Or like anytime there's chemistry, there's like bubbling liquids of various very bright fluorescent colors it's like that's not what chemistry looks like it's all just bland colors like that's not real 
Exactly. Oh, it just really bothers me. <laughs> yeah, I know a number of scientists who really dislike the um, safety that is not shown in those images too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So hair not being back and covered mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, or but they do have goggles on even if what they're doing doesn't require it because goggles, yep. that's science, right? Yeah. So obviously scientists, I, I think you, you've hit something really key here, this whole like demystifying and personalizing of a scientist. So like I know of like YouTube channels where like a PhD, a PhD student is like, this is what I do and uh, that's it. And this is my lab and this is what I did today. And uh, that's, that's it. That's what being a biochemist is. Or that's what being a physicist is. And I really, really like that because d- it does a couple of things. One is um, it, Right. It 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 <laughs> it takes the air out of those false image, uh, the false imagery. But two, it also is like, hey, do you think this looks cool? You can do it. You mm-hmm. totally can. No one's going to stop you. Do you want to be a biochemist? Go get a bachelor's degree and then go to a Ph.D. and you'll be one. Right. That's it. And, it, you know, it kind of gives young people a preview of what it might be like. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you encourage uh, the students to do? So I think it's really important to figure out what their individual interests are. So Mm -hmm. that could be one approach. I do know a lot of people who take that approach, but another one could be breaking down science in a way that different audiences will understand it. Um, I think that any approach is appropriate so long as communication is the central aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So we're recording right now at Caltech. Mm -hmm. And one of the professors here, he does some really interesting work in biogenetics and he blogs about it. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely technical stuff, but he's gathering the attention of people within the field. And that's a very specific type of science communication, yeah. and it attracts a very specific audience. And I think that's an appropriate way to go, too. So it's really important to make sure that we're not restricting people and mm-hmm. saying, this is how you have to communicate. You have to communicate broadly or you have to communicate narrowly. Right. Because if you, if you take that approach, many people are going to be turned off by it. They're going to say, well, that's not how I feel. That's not how I want to mm-hmm. communicate. So Yeah, because I do want to ask that. How do you feel about the flip side, the, 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 the broadest approach possible, which, which has been dubbed edutainment and is very, very popular, you know, on YouTube and everything right now, is that, does it have merit in the sense that it's maybe not so informative, but at least is turning people on to scientific concepts? I think it has merit, but what I would love to see and be able to um, track is if it creates interest only in the moment or if it's more long term. Mm-hmm. Does so, it translate into how, how do we how do we take that spark and inspire people to genuinely learn science? Exactly. That's the question. And do you have any <laughs> answers? Well, so I think that you're more informed in the area of YouTube. So I was just yeah. going to flip that question on you. Well, it, it's very difficult even for me to answer because I do find myself in this minority. I, I was just at VidCon um, a couple weeks ago, which is, if for people who don't know, it's kind of the YouTube uh, convention. And even within VidCon, we had one day called EDUCon, where the people in the educational uh, YouTube community get together. And so it was really great. And any YouTube channel you've ever seen that does educational content, they were there. And I, I just kind of, I've caught myself looking around the, around the room at 100, uh, 100 to 200 of these edutubers. And I go, man, I'm kind of like, I'm really in this bizarre middle space. You have edutainment, 
where it's sort of topic specific, trending topics. Uh, hey, just what's going on? And uh, and then on the other side, you have kind of like Khan Academy Blackboard style, only for students ever. Uh, and there's so few channels doing what I consider what I at least think that I'm doing in the middle where it is curriculum oriented and I do explain every subject in us in a or a, every topic in a subject um, it you know roughly aligned with what people are learning in school but it's like somewhat palatable a little bit more aesthetically pleasing visually somebody might feasibly just watch it just to like hey I'll learn this and I, I don't it's <laughs> I'm encouraged by the channel growth but I'm trying to figure out how to get those edutainment numbers. You know what I mean? So, I, unfortunately, I can't really think of how to do it either. Um, yeah. yeah, it's tough. Um, mm-hmm. And just to ask you another question, mm-hmm. um, how many comments do you receive that from people who are asking for more specific question uh, details um, from a video or topic that you put out? Do you see that often? Sometimes. Or, I mean, usually people just, at, they request for a specific topic. They say, sir, please video on this. They all say, sir, sir, please video on blah, blah, blah. And uh, sometimes they say something that I do kind of plan to do in the future. And I'm like, soon, soon. I'm, it's a one-man show. Be patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I'm like, I, no, I'm not going to I'm not gonna do that one. But yeah, yeah I mean, I try to... I try to ride that line and get, you know, technical enough that students do use it to study, you mm-hmm. know, but I'm trying, I've even since day one, always just been kind of like, look, let's keep it just barely general enough that the general public, you know, I'm still mm-hmm. dreaming of that day, uh, you know, of where we can popularize science enough that, that it, that people watch educational content the way they watch Netflix. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, I just binged Professor Dave's biology series in two days oh man it was awesome you know like so that's where edutainment maybe does sort of act as an open door Mm -hmm. and i do like that there's more science programming in general um is there any kind of stuff sort of in the popular zeitgeist that you think is especially effective or that you like personally a lot well um i was just thinking of the netflix series by Bill Nye Mm -hmm. and to be honest I've watched maybe half an episode of that and it it involved a lot of celebrities Mm -hmm. as well as scientists Mm -hmm. so that in a way I think is one approach to popularizing science Mm -hmm. and um I again I'm flipping (laughs) the interview here no no it's it's a dialogue did you have any thoughts on that on Bill Nye yeah Oh, boy. <laughs> so I do. I hesitate because I don't like to naysay. I I actually think it is a very ineffective model. I think that, I mean, not not to, I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true. And, and having an icon and, and bringing people in and getting them interested. I just, I watched a few of the episodes and I thought that he was very short and uh, dismissive. He would do like a panel on GMOs and he'd have like, somebody from an opposing viewpoint and you would just kind of mock them really uh i just i think it's sort of i don't see that show i want to try to find a kind of programming that will at, will bridge the gap a little bit i know that that's the hardest thing to do but science content is being viewed by science enthusiasts and i i'm hoping that there's a way to if we can avoid that that sort of air of superiority if we can 
speak to the flat earthers, maybe not the flat earthers specifically, but speak to at least the science uneducated Mm -hmm. and show them that it's not dogma, that it's not another faith-based thing, that it's just, look, it's, it's, it's here. You can learn it. You can learn it. Anybody Mm -hmm. can learn it. You just read a little bit, watch some stuff. It'll all make sense, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm actually trying currently to develop some TV ideas and figure out exactly how to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So not the not the Bill Nye model then. Yeah, I hate. I sorry if Bill ever hears this. I think you're a very effective science communicator. I think you're an icon. But just the, the, I, I don't know the way the show got thrown together. Yeah. There's a lot of like middle school demonstrations. You know the strawberry DNA and stuff. It's like it's it's definitely not quite magic show level. It's not like the elephant toothpaste. Like whoa, this is so cool. It's <laughs> science. Like it's 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 better than that. But it's not like. I would like to see more relevant things being demonstrated, you know. So it's interesting. You know the history of Bill Nye and GMOs, right? Uh, a little bit. I, I teach a case study in my course, Social Media for Scientists and Engineers, that's on this. Mm-hmm. And he actually flipped his stance on it mm-hmm. for a long time. He was anti-GMO. Mm-hmm. And um, he ended up switching his stance because he visited Monsanto. And you can only imagine what the right. anti-GMOers thought Left of that. with a big bag of cash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Which, in their defense, I mean, it's it's plausible. You know what I mean? Like, you, it, it's not it's not a lot. It's not completely illogical. Mm-hmm. And if you're, you know, he went and he saw what they were doing, and he understood. I mean, and I, I don't know exactly what goes on at Monsanto, and I can't like completely absolve them of everything they've ever done. Mm-hmm. I can just speak to what I know about genetic modification as a concept and as a process, and defend it as scientific innovation. So I don't know what happened over there, but you know, I, it's just as logical to say he walked around, he saw what was going on, he saw the technology, and he said, look, this is good stuff, you know, mm-hmm. we should do it. And <laughs> so. Yeah. so I was actually very interested in what he learned. Okay. And I reached out to Monsanto Oh. and got an invitation to go visit. So I visited both campuses and got to learn what he did. And nice. it was very, very effective science communication. I'd like science to communication. hear more about that. Um, so I did, I spent two full days there Mm -hmm. and I visited both of their campuses. Uh, one of them was agricultural and I went on a tour with a bunch of, um, farmers and my impression of farming before this is what you would imagine, I think just very stereotypical Mm -hmm. of a farmer and rustic tools and farming. 150 years ago, exactly. we think is still farming today. Yeah, but yeah. that's not the case at all. Right. It's very, very advanced. And most of the time when farmers are out there, they are using very expensive equipment mm-hmm. and are able to track the effectiveness of um, the crops and the crop yields using things like iPads. So that was really interesting to learn and also to see the effect of genetic modifications on plants. So they had this great display where they had one plant, I think it was soybeans, um, that was not genetically modified and one that was. And the one that was genetically modified included something that made it, that it so that it wasn't attractive to bugs. Right. They had all these bugs in the display and the one that was not modified was just in holes. Decimated. Yeah. Yeah. And the other one was fine. 
So those types of visuals, I think, are very effective in explaining the science and why um, things are modified and changed and how it helps us. This th- see now that's very interesting me to me because there there are obviously science and technology is prevalent in every area of human civilization. Right. But there seem to be these two tracks. There's the one track which is tech, which is our phones and our cars and our and everyone's like the more the better. Let's go. Better phone. I want it. Cooler video games. Let's do it. And they don't care about the ramifications. They don't care who's building it in the factory. They want their gadgets. They want their gear. And then there's this other side where it's medicine and it's food. And they're like, what, what were we doing 700 years ago? I want that. I want what we were doing before science ever did. I don't want any science in my food. I don't want any science in what, you know, I don't want to take the medicine that the doctor tells me to take. What, those are such disparate ideas. Where does that come from? <laughs> what can we do about that? Ooh. Where that comes from, I have no idea, but I've seen this firsthand. Um, because it's not its not that they don't understand one thing and they understand the other. They right. don't know how their phone works. Right. They have no idea, and I, I don't. I certainly, I'm so tech, uh, I'm an idiot. I don't know how computers work or anything, but they don't get computers and they want them, and, and they don't get you know, nutrition and, and medicine and, you know, not everybody has to, most people don't, and that's fine, but they trust one and not the other. It's so strange to me. Yeah. I think people, um, look at different areas in different ways. I can understand why food would be such a hot topic because mm-hmm. we are ingesting it and that feels a lot different than say an iPhone or that's true. a computer. Okay. It's more personal. Exactly. Yeah. But um, what about when our, actually that's a very good point because once we start doing like the nanobots and like your phone, you know, the phone was in a room in your house and then it's in your pocket and then it's like a contact lens and then it's inside you. And then, so we'll probably see the same kind of backlash there. Okay. So, so the, so it's when it's in your body, that's Mm -hmm. when people start to freak out. (laughs) Yep. Definitely. Okay. That's actually good that we got, got some clarification on that. And we see that with vaccines too, right? That's true. So, Mm -hmm. So how can now, so as a science communicator, so I'm not a scientist. I don't do any science. I just sit all day and think about there's some science and there's some people who don't get it. How can I make them get it? So how can, and and we're identifying what scientists themselves should do. Where's the synergy? Where, where do, where does someone like me work with scientists to together figure out how to communicate because I do reach my limit. I reach my limit where I'm like, well, okay, actually I don't get that. That's too much science and I've capped out my science. So how do we come together and just present the world with like, this is what's going on? Um, I think that we see that often in the university setting, um, different communication departments working with the scientists in uh, different departments here at Caltech. That happens all the time and mm-hmm. definitely at USC as well. Outside of academic circles, I know that corporations also do similar stuff mm-hmm. um, that are in biotech and the sciences. Outside of it, more specifically in what you do, um, honestly, I think doing podcasts like this mm-hmm. with scientists can be extremely helpful. Um, so Sam Harris has Waking Up with Sam Harris, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And he did a great episode with um, Jennifer Doudna. 
and she explained CRISPR-Cas9. Mm-hmm. So things like that, those sorts of dialogues and discourses and making the information readily available and free to the public is um, a, a good approach. So I think that would be one way for you to be able to collaborate with scientists. So I should start a podcast. Start a podcast. Check. <laughs> no, I do agree completely because actually that is a good point. Uh, I, whereas I find that a, that a medium like YouTube uh, lends itself to really flashy edutainment, like people just seem to be drawn more towards that. And so it's a feedback loop. People just start making more mm-hmm. content like that. Whereas the podcast as a medium, it's just what's going to happen? Some people are going to be talking. Mm-hmm. That's what a podcast is. So nobody expects more than that. And it sort of gives everyone's coming into a podcast episode with the patience of knowing they're going to explain some stuff. I'm going to try to understand it mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever it is they're listening to. They're not looking for flash. They're exactly. looking for con. That's that's great. That's excellent. Yeah. Okay. More podcasts. Any any <laughs> good? Well, I, I guess I shouldn't give my listeners any ideas of other podcasts to listen to. Well, but, I, uh, I think going with relevant topics mm-hmm. that are not necessarily. Um, just aim towards those that are science literate or already interested in science are really good. Mm-hmm. So for instance, something that's trending in the, in the news. Um, I love that you did the podcast recently about wildfires in Southern mm-hmm. California. Yeah. So um, more content like that, I think would definitely Absolutely. just get others. people in. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting though. It is a little bit tricky because so for something like the wildfires that that's, that sort of, it's definitely current and it's, it's something that people will go, yeah, what's, what's up with that. Right. right. But then there are other things where it kind of makes me laugh a little bit, uh, especially in like physics because physics is so hard to understand. Mm-hmm. And so, okay. Gravitational waves, right. We got the gravitational waves and everyone, everyone's on YouTube, like gravitational waves explained in 60 seconds yep. and, and check it out. And everyone's like, oh, okay, now I understand. Really? You do not No, You do not understand gravitational waves. No, you don't. Do you know how I know? Because you do not have a bachelor's and at least a master's or a PhD in physics. Right. So it's just that, that is a thing where everyone kind of wants to know, They want to know the thing right now. Exactly. Whether or not they have the foundation to comprehend it or not. So that's where things get a little bit complicated because Mm -hmm. if people start to assume that they understand these really complex concepts, then they make the jump and say, well, if I understand this, then I can fill in the gaps here and also understand these other technical topics. Right. And it like medicine and it, yeah. Exactly. So it I really worry about that and Do you think content has a duty to or these people who are creating this content, do they have a duty to not oversimplify things to a point to give people that false sense of security? I think that going into it, it would be really great if a lot of these different um channels or approaches to communication kind of had a little disclaimer Mm -hmm. saying Mm -hmm. this is actually a lot more complicated but here's the big picture on it yeah um i don't know what do you think i agree i mean at least a disclaimer but at the but i mean in my content i i sort of try to get as deep as i can and then go we won't go beyond this because Mm -hmm. it's it's you know like when i did modern physics content i'll say Look, these are the concepts, but th- it's math, and we—I don't even know the math, so I can't explain it to you. Mm-hmm. But if you want to get it more than this, you need to do math, <laughs> and yeah. 
really, you know, and so like right now I'm doing astronomy content and like I'll, I, I'm in a advantageous position because I've already made content on chemistry and physics and all these other things. So I will go, and this is the thing, if you want to know more about that, go to my physics tutorial and mm-hmm. we talk about it over there, you know, to try to, I, I'm, I'm in, I'm very interested in making this like web of content that's all sort of interconnected through the little cards Mm -hmm. and uh this is it and if you want to know more go over there and then from that one if you want to know more go to this one yeah and uh, just keep a lot keep people on my channel for hours and hours and hours on end there you go yeah um i think one important thing for communicators to be aware of as well is that americans have a very difficult time Um, telling the difference between facts and opinions. Mm -hmm. So a recent study came out by Pew, which illustrated this very clearly. And it's a little bit alarming. Uh, We need people to know the difference. And um, I I don't think a lot of communicators are aware of how how bad the situation is. Mm -hmm. So that in, in the public or amongst themselves as well in the public. Okay. So just something to be aware of for audiences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do we address that? I think being very clear and saying, this is my opinion. Right. Is one approach again with the disclaimers. Just using language properly. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Okay. I have a question about, I want to talk about communication styles, right? Because you're, you're engaging with your students and you're, you're, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're sort of telling them what's the best way to present the knowledge things like that, modes of presentation. Mm-hmm. Do, do we have to, I always hear that we have to appeal to emotion and we have to tell a story and we have to, et cetera. Is that true? Or is it? are there times where just facts can stand on their own merit and be inspiring? Well, I think it really depends on what the communicator's goal is. Mm-hmm. If there's, if the goal is to persuade someone Um, I think storytelling is an effective way to do so and incorporating emotion into it as well. Um, It's not going to be effective every single time because Mm -hmm. there are people who are extremely set in their ways and are convinced that um, vaccines are going to cause autism, that the earth is flat, any of these things. So those are emotion-based. Yes. And so those are instances in which we should or should not engage on an emotional level. Honestly. Like, are we fighting fire with fire or are we going to fight fire with water? Or which, you know, what's the best? Do we go to there where they're at or do we show them something else? It, it's so hard. It's so hard to choose a strategy, you know. At this point, given my recent experience in meeting some conspiracy theorists, I I think that it's... Tell us about that. (laughs) Well, um, I recently was at the the Salton Sea, Mm -hmm. and I was conducting an experiment with a group of skeptics to show that there's curvature in the Earth, Mm -hmm. and there were about 30 or so flat earthers. And in my conversations with them, I, I firmly believe that a population like that, that is very set in their ways cannot be persuaded otherwise just period yes nothing there is no hope if you talked to me two years ago i would have a very different position Mm -hmm. but after my engagements with them and understanding that this is actually a different way of thinking they don't just believe in flat earth they believe in every other conspiracy as well and there's nothing that you can do to change their minds so they also believe in 
et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. All the other ones. Yep. And even just having a discussion with them about their beliefs, um, not necessarily approaching it as something that you want to change their opinions can be very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, one area that I tend to cringe and really kind of get upset and worked up over is Mm anti-vax sentiment. And um, yeah, I I just shut down when I see that and experience it firsthand. But they believe it. They believe in Illuminati. They believe in all these other areas. And there's nothing that can be done that I'm aware of that can change that. So it's almost like communication efforts are wasted on those that are set. But there's a whole generation coming up that sort of doesn't know which way they're going. And we need to intercept them yeah before they <laughs> go I, that way too i've been really interested to see what is it that changes somebody from being yeah the earth is round to the earth is flat and right. i i met some flat earthers a few months ago actually at a meetup and mm-hmm. i went into it saying that i was a skeptic and i asked them what ended up converting them um and they said it started out with facebook posts that they saw and they said flat earth is a joke what is this And then they decided to do their own research, which always ended up being one or two YouTube videos. Yeah. (laughs) Research. Right. They busted out their protractor and got on YouTube. So, and we see this very often. Mm -hmm. um, People saying, do your research, but they don't actually understand what that means. Right. What is research? Yeah. Right. What is the scientific method? What is empiricism? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I think... As you mentioned, earlier generations, we really need to get them early so that they understand what these terms mean and why we believe the things that we do. Do you have any idea through social media where we're at with the young ones, with the teens? Do they, what, is, what seems to be going on with them? I honestly, I focus a lot of my efforts on adults and mm-hmm. young adults, so it's not my main area. Right, nor is it mine. I mean, I guess high school age for like Gen Chem and things like that, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's not really what I'm thinking about all the time. But I, I guess we ought to, because otherwise in 10 years, we're going to have a bunch of adults just like these ones, you know? Right. So I I would love to see more responsibility on the side of the um, social media platforms themselves Mm -hmm. and taking it upon themselves to delete this inaccurate content. We're seeing it right now with Twitter. Mm. They actually have deleted something like 20% of the bots that are putting out misinformation and disinformation around our elections. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great step. Um, Other platforms... I we haven't really seen them step up to the plate as much. Bots, sure, but it does become a slippery slope. I don't know. I mean, I'm definitely again, I mean, maybe I could be convinced otherwise, but Mm -hmm. at at face value, I think censorship is bad, Mm -hmm. right? So how do you treat someone who is sharing, uh, to me, there's a distinction between someone who's sharing fake information that they believe Mm -hmm. and someone who's sharing fake information that they know is false and they're just trying to manipulate people. Right. So that's the difference between misinformation and disinformation. Right. Okay. Is the mm-hmm. intent. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with David Wolf? Yeah. Yes, I am. <laughs> In fact, I think we had a conversation about him. Did we? One, yeah. 
David Avocado Wolf. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, since you're familiar, what do you think of his posts that he puts out about, you know, this root is going to cure co- cancer if you take it and this... Yeah, it's dangerous. I mean, the 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 thing about a person like him is that nine out of ten posts are like, and I'm not familiar with his content, so I can't recall any of them off top of off the, off top of my head. But they'll be like, you know, meditate and like, oh, mm-hmm. like do yoga or like, um, you know, look at this wonderful, you know, be present or something. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, sure, I don't, I don't have a problem with any of that. But it's just it's it's like he's building a flavor. He's got like a flavor to it. Right. And then, boom, one of them will be in there that's like, oh, good God. Exactly. No, don't listen to this at all. And people share it. I, 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 I used to engage on Facebook uh, on my personal account, not even I mean, not on the Professor Dave account on my personal mm-hmm. account. If somebody would post uh, and I still do to an extent, if somebody posts blatant misinformation, I'll engage. I'll I'll notify them. I try to do it as politely as possible. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, this is false. Here's why. And it always erupts, usually, into something. And I try to be cordial, but I try to say, look, I'm a science communicator. I feel a civic duty to comment on this and say, no, beets do not cure cancer. Mm-hmm. If they did, no one would have cancer. You right. would eat a freaking beet and not have cancer anymore. Yeah, so. it- you hit on an important point, I think. Um, it can be extremely frustrating to mm-hmm. combat misinformation on social media. And when you see somebody who is just being that uninformed make comments and suggest that other people should be eating beets to instead of going in for chemo, it can, it can be really, really frustrating mm-hmm. and upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that I train students, if they decide that they want to combat this issue, um, is to think about the secondary crowd that you're never going to engage with. All of the lurkers who are reading this exchange, you're not going to change that person's opinion who you're engaging right. with. Right, almost certainly not. So you want to put your information out there in a way that is approachable and is not off-putting to... Not combative. Yeah, your, yeah. your lurkers. That's a very good point. I think I learned that on my own over time, just sort of as getting more mature, just like, mm-hmm. look, just, just don't, you know, I, I sort of molded my approach a little bit yeah to try to be more like that well that's good to know i mean sometimes i feel like i'm punching a brick wall and and other people say why do you even do that what's the point and like i don't know it's 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 there's a lot of internal conflict because i am like this is probably pointless Mm -hmm. but i'm still driven to do it and i and i don't know why i i I don't know but i think Somebody could read that and right. could be a skeptic and not really know which side they're landing on and be convinced by what you've put out if you've put it out in a way that is understandable mm-hmm. to it's them. It's a drop in the bucket. Exactly. Yeah, but drops that up. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, making me feel better mm-hmm. about my Facebook activity. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. So I, I have an interesting idea because it seems like kind of w- there is this little wave of nerd culture and there is this little wave of, um, you know, it's a little bit trendy sometimes. What I imagine, could there be a Coachella for science? It Would, there, would a public respond, would the public respond to like 
you know what, we're at this convention center or at this something or other, and these these people are here, these figures are here, uh, there's a lot of scientists that are doing interesting stuff, there's some science communicators that are doing stuff too, but it's it's all about we're communicating science. Here's what's going on in the world today. You know all those Facebook posts and everything that you're looking at? Well, this is straight from the mouths of the people who are doing the science, and it's uh, 100 bucks, two-day pass, Come on down, you, you know, like a science conference, but but everybody goes, not just chemists and uh, those kinds of people. Would where, that work? Well, first of all, where did you get this idea? Because I was thinking about this three months ago. For real? <laughs> yeah. I don't know where. I mean, I just I've been to a couple of science conferences, uh-huh. and then I've been to like VidCon and stuff, and I'm always just like, ah, this is like sort of interesting, but like it's not. I want to, you know, and then I worry that it's like maybe going to be too hard because I think that I, as a generalist, ha- have a pretty good shot at being at an event like that and go- bouncing around from room to room to biology, to astronomy, et cetera, and being like, okay, yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty on top of this. I mean, some of the details um, elude me, but mm-hmm. I, I get it. There's that. That's I, I feel like I'm part of a smaller community. Like, would this have the broad appeal? Because the, the, the danger is that everybody just lowers their bar to the lowest common denominator, and then we don't like. I I want there. To, I I'd want to retain the sanctity, of you know the purity of like a science conference, and maybe bring it down like one notch, just a little bit to kind of, but not like, whoa, like crazy. You know, just not pop culture. Like this, it's science. This is what we're here for. You know. Mm-hmm. I think those strictly and. Formal science conferences are always going to be there. Those are not going away anytime soon. Well, they serve their purpose. Exactly. But what would this look like? Have you been to South by Southwest? Oh, yeah. I've played a couple times. Okay. Have you been to any of the talks or the expo that NASA does? Mm Mm-mm. Their talks are phenomenal, and their setup at the exposition hall is just—it's fantastic. People, nice. people love it. They go to it because it's NASA. They do everything in terms of outreach and communication, right? Um, I think if there was that approach, um, it could be effective because they have a way of getting people excited about the science mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's been really interesting the last couple of years to see their um, exhibits because they've been using VR and augmented reality to put people in different scenarios where they can just be more involved and feel more um, connected to it mm-hmm. so I do see that there's real potential yeah. for something that would go cross over into other disciplines mm-hmm. I think having a low price point or making it free for um, low-income families would also serve the purpose of getting people who have genuinely generally been not involved in science a way to be inspired by it i love it absolutely and i mean i i do love nasa and i do love their whole approach to things i wonder if like i wonder if there's something to the way that people especially young people sort of fixate on or gravitate towards individual personalities so like in music you know when you go to a music festival you're like oh i want to see that band i want to see that artist i want to see all blah 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 if we could like i've it's always mystified me why we don't treat scientists that way why don't we know sort of i mean the the only scientists people know are einstein and like the current science like you know neil degrasse tyson because he's on tv and stuff like that is why don't we know about such and such 
who did this incredible thing in biology. Like we should know all the Nobel Prize winners every year by name. Right. It's they're like the Grammy winners and the Oscar winners. Mm -hmm. Why don't we know them? Why can't we cultivate uh, a society that reveres these people the way they do? you know a pop star because to me the contribution is immeasurably greater on the side of the scientist it's true how, uh, do, we, how do we get that going uh, i'm not sure um but other countries do this so well and it just seems mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. an american thing and i think it's because if you look at our news cycle um what is it that's constantly in the news things mm -hmm. that are happening with the Kardashians, um, uh, just pop stories. Mm -hmm. So we've been ingrained to not be interested in these complex topics. But So if, is it up to us or is it up to the media outlets? A chicken, chicken or the egg? A combination, combination. because the, the media is interested in getting their clicks and yeah. um, staying in business. Loop. Yeah. yeah. So if we're not clicking and reading the science stories, if we're not engaging on those topics, then they are not going to be putting out that content. Mm. Um, and so a couple of years ago, I was in Egypt and it was just amazing to meet all the students at one of the universities because they were just so hungry for science and learning how to communicate it. And it just it was a different feel than here in the United States. Um when Ahmed Zuwail passed away, uh, he's a he's a Nobel laureate. It the entire country shut down to mourn his wow. passing, mm -hmm. and it's just it's really unfortunate that here in the United States we don't revere scientists in that way. Mm -hmm. Maybe Hawking, mm -hmm. but honestly, it's the it's his condition, right? If he was an able-bodied man, I don't think as many people would care it's it's einstein because of the hair and the picture with his tongue out mm -hmm. it's hawking because of the the disability mm -hmm. and that that's it those are the you know what i mean it's so sad that that's what we look at so with stephen hawking's passing mm -hmm. if you asked an, just anybody on the streets uh if they could name a living scientist they wouldn't be able to at this point which is really sad mm -hmm. i mean neil, neil degrasse tyson I think that would be the most common answer. Well, do you count him as a scientist or a science communicator? Well, he, uh, I mean, he's a PhD astrophysicist that was a work, he was a working astrophysicist. I don't know his daily schedule now. He's mm -hmm. probably, is he much, is he exclusively communicating now and not really practicing science? That's my understanding. Right. So then, then a, a scientist turned communicator. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't think that. Almost anybody could name a currently practicing scientist. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's unfortunate. It's a sad state of affairs. But that but that's what I meant earlier about, and maybe this ties into what your you know maybe the, your current students when they are doing great things in whatever scientific discipline they're working in thirty mm -hmm. years from now, they will have those tools to go look at what I'm doing. This is awesome. This is why you should be into it. And they can sort of start to turn the tides, get a little bit of that celebrity status to where people are invested them invested in them as a personality and mm -hmm. therefore invested in everything that they do. Mm -hmm. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing that I encounter too with students is they are afraid of over-promoting. Mm -hmm. Too much self-promotion is seen... 
as a negative, and therefore a lot of them are hesitant to do any sort of self-promotion or talk about their science. Um, so that tends to be a burden or not a burden. But why do they why do they view it in the light of promotion specifically? Why isn't it just, hey, this is what I'm doing? Because they haven't formally done any sort of communication in that way. Mm-hmm. It's usually sharing an article or commenting on something. It's never sharing anything in terms of their academic life. Mm-hmm. So it feels unnatural to them. Okay. And I, I can understand that. Um, it took me a little while to start promoting my own work in science communication as well. But once you overcome that hurdle, I think it becomes easier and more natural to start mm. doing it. I have no problem with it, but <laughs> maybe it's because I'm not a scientist. I'm just like, I made some stuff. Please watch it. Mm-hmm. Everybody, please watch it. Um, yeah. That's what I'm doing with the podcast, too. <laughs> a thinly <Good>. veiled attempt. <laughs> yeah. No, it's good. It's a different. It's a different angle. I think we're hitting some stuff that just needs to be talked about because we need this plan moving forward you know i think like you said it it is true there are lost causes and we and maybe we need to accept that the the stubborn uh little boy inside of me kind of will never really accept that and will perpetually engage with anyone uh, you know as it as it crops up in the hopes of you mm-hmm. know but yeah, it, it's we do need that we we need the long game here because 15 year olds today are going to be adults in 10, you know, 10, 15 years. They're going to be contributing to society with their votes and with their thoughts and with their money. And, um, yeah, we need, we need things to be going a different way. No, I'm with you. I, I say that, but then I will also continue to try and persuade people to not be anti-science. So it's something that I battle myself internally. Do you have fun with it? I do. It can be really frustrating at times, though, mm-hmm. too, because I've encountered some people who have been outright hostile right? and their approaches to believing in pseudoscience. Yeah. I mean, hostility definitely brings it to another level. Mm-hmm. But it, if it can be civil, I just enjoy the intellectual challenge right. of taking apart someone's, well, hopefully not worldview, but just their, their, what, their, what they're saying, their point of view in that particular moment. I really, really enjoyed the chess game of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if it can remain civil, I know I can remain civil. Mm-hmm. Um, although sometimes it takes a little bit of a couple of deep breaths. But uh, yeah, with age, it gets easier. Yeah. So um, I think that a lot of the topics that you're probably engaging on um, on social media are tied to worldviews so and personal beliefs so when that's threatened the conversation will take a different turn and it's just you're you're telling somebody in their own opinion and how they feel psychologically that they are wrong the way you experience and interact with reality is incorrect (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) it's true yeah you you do have to watch that and uh yeah i think alt health is maybe the main area of that because everything's tied to it all of their hobbies and activities Mm -hmm. and everything that they do and that's why it's the hardest to dissect because a lot of the stuff on the periphery is totally fine Mm yoga is great meditating is great eating eating healthily having like a healthy diet great you know Mm -hmm. they're all fit (laughs) it seems to be working but there's just like this little kernel at the middle Mm -hmm. that's that's illusory and we've got to figure out how to like leave everything intact. We need like some some uh, high precision surgical gear that'll go in and just get the little kernel, remove that, and just let it fill in 
with the good stuff, you know? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I've told you about this before, but if I haven't, have you read the debunking handbook? No. It's a free PDF online. It's about seven pages long, and it's great because they do have a graphic in there where it's literally showing a myth being removed in someone's brain and replaced with new information and a new narrative. Mm-hmm. So it just reminded me of that. Well, that sounds great. Is there Are there any tips for tactics to do that? Well, we kind of touched on it earlier. They say that it's important to not just um, approach the individual with facts mm-hmm. because I, I know we all think that there's a deficit model and that if we just replace the misinformation with facts that it's going to stick but our our brains don't work that way right you need feelies yeah exactly Mm -hmm. to be able to replace and um encode that information Mm -hmm. and even if you do it properly there's no guarantee that the person is going to remember that or actually believe it so 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 this is coming from the perspective of like neurobiologists and stuff there there's actually informed by like people who study the, pr- the learning process on the molecular level and things mm. like that? Or is it just sort of like a... People who study pseudoscience and believers in pseudoscience, to be honest with you, I don't know what their backgrounds are. But oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah no, because that, that is interesting. I mean, coming at it from the, from the perspective of learning on the molecular level and like, re- like an empirical way of like, if you do this people can change their mind mm-hmm. you know that that is there's got to be something to it you know because we're all we're all physical organisms and we obey you know physical laws you know even if this you know the human brain is the most complex object mm-hmm. in the known universe but later we'll know that more too and what are we going to do with that information hopefully hopefully good stuff yeah hopefully hopefully all agree about what reality is mm-hmm. but it seems unlikely i don't know do you ever catch yourself sort of I, I kind of take little glimpses into what I think things might be like 50 years from now. And like, I'm kind of a naive optimist. And so I sort of, I'm like, oh, this, uh, you know, obsession with materialism and, uh, you know, economic wealth, that'll go away and we'll all kind of, you know, and then, um, and then I'll go, oh, you're so freaking naive. Like, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Dystopian television shows. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. And I just ping pong back and forth and I don't know until I'm just exhausted and I need a nap. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can definitely understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if I were to predict the future, I think augmented reality and virtual reality is, be- is going to become more ingrained mm-hmm. in our daily lives, similar to the way that we grew up with um, the Internet. Yeah. It took a, a decade or so, maybe even less than that, for it to become an everyday Ubiquitous, tool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that that technology is going to be there. I agree completely. I actually just I'm partnering now with the with a VR group uh, to try to make some content because I sort of I realized that like YouTube, like that very front wave was like oh seven oh eight and like you know Khan Academy mm-hmm. got in there and just you know blew up. Which they put some stuff up and some of those early channels and I'm like oh, I missed that first wave and now I'm like you know what VR. I got to get on that first wave, man. <laughs> yeah, it's still the wild, wild west right now. Yeah. Um, there isn't one set tool that's being used. It's just, it, it's a really exciting time. Mm-hmm. Um, a few months ago, I attended a medical VR uh, conference at Cedar sinai and it was just fascinating to see how physicians are using this. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's say... Like surgical training, essentially? Yeah, so the training part, 
it it seemed kind of clunky. But the area that I was really fascinated with was how they're using it to communicate complex surgeries and procedures to patients. So one of the sessions showed how a physician put a uh, patient into a VR setting. It was actually the patient's parents. Um, This young boy had to have surgery in his brain. And they were able to show exactly how it was going to be done, how it was going to target the the tumor and um, risks involved, things like that. And it really calmed the parents down, mm. and they were able to visualize what was going to happen. And um, it, without that technology, how would you explain something so complex? Yeah. So I hope to see more of this in the um, in the hospital. And uh, just between patients and physicians. Yeah, and I wondered the utility for actually augmenting the the, the processes and the, the actual surgeries and mm-hmm. how how that could go, how we can do things that we couldn't do before. Yeah, I wonder what that's all going to be. But uh, all I know is it's going to be crazy because I mean I had to put on a headset maybe two or three times before, just like oh oh cool this is cool. And then uh, you know these guys that I'm going to be working with, they came over the other day and uh, you know I put on the headset and I did the molecular modeling uh, program and played with that and. And then they threw on this game and I was playing this game and I just, I remember having the headset on for like an hour and a half and like taking it off and being like, oh, I'm in my apartment. Ugh. <laughs> oh God. Like it's just, it's going to change everything. It's yeah. going to change how we think. It's going to change what we spend our time doing. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what's going to happen, but it's going to be big. <laughs> yeah. So you just reminded me something of something. Again, back to that conference, they had a panel of three patients discuss their own experiences with mm-hmm. using VR. And these were patients who were constantly in the hospital because of various conditions. Um, one person said that he had been um, hospitalized in the last year about 17 times. So you can only imagine how frustrating yeah. and depressing it would be to be in a um, in a bed that long. And so he explained that he uses VR to escape. And he would go to Yosemite or somewhere across the world, Paris, and not be in the in the hospital, not be in pain. Yeah, it it's like a democratization of experience. Mm-hmm. It's like we can't all go to this amazing mansion or amazing restaurant or amazing uh, natural park or something like that. And like we kind of all can a little bit more now. Yeah. So that's part of it. It also just like. If you can think of the most aesthetically pleasing scenery or or like this incredible architecture or something like that and is just you no one will build it it costs too much money but you can program it and as VR technology gets better like we can all just go check it out I mm-hmm. mean it just made me think like man I I am I really want to like make VR you know what I mean yeah and just think of it from a science communication perspective mm-hmm. you can be explaining to somebody how synapses fire and you can be and they can be seeing that absolutely so it's yeah the first thing I'm going to use it for is organic chemistry uh, just basically students that have poor spatial reasoning skills mm-hmm. and they can't like take a molecule and rotate it in their heads and you know for chirality and confirmations and things like that mm-hmm. just to go look this is what I see in my head and now you're in my head and you're seeing it too. So like that first, but then, you know, I'm talking to these guys. So I'm just in the budding stages of this. So if you if you hear students or if you've ever had any ideas of like, oh, they should make a VR module like this, let me know because I'm, I'm on the ball here. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, I've just been thinking about what I can do over the next year or two to try to like 
oh, I was the first one to do that. I mm-hmm. wasn't the first one on YouTube to put chemistry lectures, but I'm going to be the first one to do this. Damn yeah. it. <laughs> Super exciting. I think, yeah. um, let's see, it was Goldman Sachs. They put out predictions for VR. And they said that first it's going to be games, but then after right. that, education is really going to be taking over as the um, market for this technology. So mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. getting in now, you're ahead of the curve. I'm so excited. <laughs> They're coming over on Friday to bring me all the gear to keep and start playing around. And awesome. <laughs> I think for I think in line with that with that sequence of events that you just said, mm-hmm. it'll my my experience will be very similar in that probably from around Friday to Monday I'll play games nonstop. And then I'll kind of go like, okay, all right, I got that out of my system. Let's get to work here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's let's make some VR modules. Totally understandable. Uh, okay, so we've definitely outlined a lot about what we can do with SciComm, different types of SciComm, ways that we can bring it together, try to influence young, younger people. The the last thing I want to ask is, it, in in your experience looking at science communicators and and uh, in, in working with people to make them better science communicators, are there any traits that you see crop up constantly amongst effective science communicators? Is there any common thread, something that you see over and over again that just really good science communicators have and that we should be nurturing? Eagerness. Eagerness. And it may seem really obvious, but in higher education, this can be something that we need to be aware of and actually promote and encourage. Um, A lot of times I interact with students who say, yes, I have an interest in communicating my science, but I need to keep it on the down low because if my PI finds out, I'll be in trouble because this is time away from the bench. Mm -hmm. And I am just always devastated when I hear this because this is something that we should be promoting, not saying, let's, you know, focus on your science. Don't worry about communicating it. Right. So I think that if I could give one piece of advice, it would be to um, encourage or at least not stand in the, in the way of people who wish to communicate science. Leave the door open. Mm-hmm. Let the people. Yeah. So it's interesting. There are scientists who say, I don't have time for that. I got to exactly. do this. And there's ones who are like, I want to do this. And uh, maybe some want to exclusively communicate science. Maybe some want to do both science and communicate. Maybe mm-hmm. 50-50, 80-20, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I agree. We need to let everyone express themselves. Yeah, and in higher education, this means assigning value to outreach efforts. A lot of times it's just something that's required because of a grant or mm-hmm. um, it's an afterthought. And I think we really do ourselves a disservice when we treat it that way. Mm -hmm. I agree wholeheartedly. Okay, well, I think everyone got got a good got a good glimpse into the the world of the Mm psychomer, and uh, hopefully a few tips about how to interact with with science content and how to you know put cast your vote for the kind of content you want to see. Yeah, please watch more science videos. (laughs) Yes, especially you know who. (laughs) Yep. Cool. All right. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you. 